you. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're continuing our study in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. And uh, we're going to be picking up this morning with verses 3 through 7. But I'm going to back up and read verses 1 through 7. We dealt with verses 1 and 2 two weeks ago. So I'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And again, let us be careful as we listen to the reading of God's Word. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in our authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. That is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask now your blessing upon our time together in your word. And we pray that you would take it and that you would use it as the sword of the Spirit. It would cut us apart, away from us, that which displeases you. It would show us more clearly how we can live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. As we pray that you would watch over the door of my lips and that you would use the words spoken from this pulpit here this morning as words of grace and truth to encourage the hearts of your people who come to hear and to grow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to understand what uh, Paul is saying in verses 3 through 7, you really do have to look back at what he said in the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. It probably wasn't the best thing uh, to break uh, this passage up into two sermons. Uh, And it probably wasn't a good idea to take a Sunday off in between. But you wouldn't have wanted to sat through the whole exposition of this passage at one sitting. And it does me a lot of good to be away for a Sunday. So here we are. Uh, trying to pick ourselves up and tie these verses together. As I said two weeks ago, this is a call to prayer. The church is to be all about prayer. Again, I can't express too much the importance of prayer. We're to pray at all times for all things. We're to be committed to pray, and we're to be faithful to pray. This passage, again, is an earnest plea, an appeal, a call to prayer. We saw that uh, in the first verse, Paul 
talks about prayer using four different terms. They are entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Then he goes on to verse 2 to say that we are to pray, offering these things, these entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings on behalf of all men, including kings and all who are in authority. It was there, you might recall, if you were here, I took a bit of a tangent and uh, on the Sunday before the presidential election and talked about some of the things for which we should pray about those who are in authority over us and the kinds of things, therefore, we should expect from those in positions of leadership authority over us as a result of our prayers. Let me add a postscript to that sermon this morning. Pray for the president. Pray for Mr. Obama. And for Mr. Biden. For those in his cabinet. For those in positions of authority. Pray for it. The scripture commands us to pray for it. Pray for his heart to be changed. For his values to reflect the values of the Word of God. For his priorities to reflect those of the heart of God. Pray that God will bring him to his knees, not just in humility, but in prayer. Pray that he'll have wisdom. Wisdom to do the right things in the right ways. And as Paul says in verse 2, pray that his leadership will enable us to live a quiet and tranquil life and enable us to pursue godliness and dignity. Again, we have two primary responsibilities toward the civil government. First is to submit to it, and the second is to pray for it. I'm going to try to be more diligent myself uh, to heed that admonition, and I would encourage you to do the same. Pray for our government. Well, that brings us to our text for the morning, beginning with verse 3, which is a continuation of this call to prayer, especially this call to pray for all men, or to have what I call broad or global prayers. We see two things in these verses. One is Paul gives us some reasons to pray in verses 3 and 4, and then he describes more the basis for prayer in verses 5 through 7. So then first, Paul gives us some reasons to pray, specifically reasons to pray, these broad, sweeping, global prayers for all men. He gives us two reasons. One is found in verse 3. And that's simply because it pleases God. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, Paul says. Now the word this in verse 3 obviously refers back to what he's just said in verses 1 and 2, where he urged that these entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, including kings and all who are in positions of authority. Those kinds of broad global, expansive, all-inclusive prayers 
please God, they are acceptable to him. And the flip side, I would say, is that God is not pleased with narrow, limited, restricted prayers that tend to focus only on ourselves. And that's a great temptation, isn't it, as we pray? I would imagine if the, most of us examined our prayers, we would find them to be far too narrow and far too small. I would imagine if you examined your prayers, you would realize that you pray an awful lot about yourself and about your family and not so much about the world. You know, I, 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 I don't know about you, but I kind of tend to live with a type of tunnel vision. You know, I see, I see what's right in front of me. And I take a day at a time, almost a step at a time. And I'm afraid sometimes my prayers are that way too. I pray with a kind of tunnel vision about, about what is right there in front of me, the pressing immediate needs. And it's helpful sometimes just to take the blinders off and, and to pray not just about the pressing immediate needs that we face, but to pray broad, global expansive prayers for the world. Paul says God is pleased when we do that. It pleases him. The other reason is that it God, accomplishes God's purpose in the world. But what is God's primary purpose? It is to save his people. Verse 3, in verse 3, Paul refers to God as our Savior. And then in verse 4, he goes on to say, this, this God who is our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this text is one of the classic battleground texts between what we know as Calvinists and Arminians, between those who embrace Reformed theology and those who do not, between those who believe that God is sovereign over all of life, including salvation, and those who believe that God has in some way yielded his sovereignty to man on that particular issue. Those of us who embrace what we know as Reformed theology see the sovereignty of God taught on every page of the Bible. We believe that God has chosen a people for himself but for the foundation of the world and that God sent his son, Jesus, save his people. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When the angel came to Joseph to tell him that Mary was with child and instructed him what to name the baby, he said, you shall call his name Jesus. He wanted to say, because he will save his people from their sins. And then Jesus said in John chapter 6, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day 
But then you say, well, what are we to do? What are we to do with these universal passages in Scripture that speak as though all will be saved? Well, you must keep Scripture in the context of Scripture. We believe that the Bible does not contradict itself. It has one unified message that is taught from the first verse in Genesis all the way through the last verse of Revelation. And again, throughout the Old Testament and into the New, it's clear that God has chosen a people for himself and that he moves on behalf of those people to rescue them, to redeem them. We're studying the book of Exodus on Sunday evenings, and it's all about redemption. But that redemption was focused on one particular nation in the Old Testament. And if you wanted to come to God in the Old Testament, you had to come through the Jews. Now, it is through the church. The gospel has been expanded to include, as we'll see in just a moment, not just Jews, but Gentiles. And aren't you thankful for that? I see a lot of Gentiles here this morning. Aren't you thankful that God has included the gospel or expanded the gospel to include people like us? The concern in our text, and I wandered a little bit away from my notes, and that's why I end up preaching too long sometimes, is in verse 4 where it says God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The question is, what, is, what does the word all mean there? Does it mean every single person who has ever lived? Remember the context, the specific context here where Paul is making a plea to pray, right? This is a plea to pray. And in verse 1, he's already used this same word where he said that I urge that your entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of who? All men. All men. Well, is that an admonition, instruction for you to pray for every single person who's ever lived, every person who's alive today, every person that you know? Now, this is a call have global prayers, expansive prayers, to pray for the world, to pray for all kinds of men that God would rescue and redeem them from their sins. And that, I think, is what Paul's saying here in verse 4. God desires not just for Jews to be saved, but all men, all kinds of men around the world to be saved. John 3, 16, God so loved the what? The world. He loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why do we pray for all kinds of men to be saved? Because God desires for all kinds of men to be saved. The wonder of the gospel is that God works through means to accomplish his eternal plan of salvation. Do you realize that? Sometimes people say, well, if God has chosen the people for the foundation of the world, why pray? Well, I'd say the other way. It's because God has chosen the people before that foundation of the world that you should pray. 
Because God uses your prayers, my prayers. Think of it. God uses your prayers to bring to salvation those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. God works through means. And he's saying here, pray. Pray for all men. Pray for kings, for all in authority. God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth to be saved. Pray earnestly for the salvation of all men, for all kinds of men, for Americans, black, white, Hispanic. Pray for Africans, Europeans, Afghanis, Iraqis, Palestinians. Pray for Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. Pray for them to be saved. You're to expand your horizons and to pray global evangelistic prayers that God would fulfill the desires of His heart that all men would be saved. That's the only way you can pray with confidence. Isn't it? It's the only way you can pray with confidence. Because you know the Bible teaches that God will bring His people to Himself. And so you can pray confidently and boldly that God would call His people around the world to salvation and give them the gift of eternal life. We pray, are to pray, these broad, expansive prayers. Because God uses our prayers to accomplish His eternal will. And then second, we see the basis for prayer in verses 5 through 7. Prayer, of course, is offered to God. Now, what's the basis, the confidence with which we pray? One is, is God's character itself. Verse 5, Paul says there's one God. One God. Aren't many gods? There's one God. And we pray to Him. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. He is a kind, benevolent, merciful, gracious, patient God. And we pray to Him. We pray to the one true God. There are other people who have other gods, whether it be a Muslim or a Hindu or a thing an idol for which they live, to which they give their attention. But praying to anyone else or anything else than the one God is an exercise in futility. The psalmist says they have eyes but they can't see, they have ears but they can't hear, they have lips but they can't speak. We pray to the true and living God because He does live and He hears. He's inclined to the hearts and the needs of His people. And He responds to our pleas 
for help. And so one of the bases for our prayers is the character of God. Another basis is the work of Christ. Not only is there one God, there's also one mediator. Verse 5. One mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There aren't many ways to God. There's only one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And here he says, there is one mediator between God and man. Paul says in Romans 5 that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has made peace. He's made peace. You know, that's what a mediator does. A mediator goes and intercedes. He brings erring, warring parties together. And the Bible says that's the way we were before our salvation. We were at enmity with God. We were his enemies. We were estranged from him. And Christ has come and reconciled us to the Father. He is our mediator. And he continues to function in that place, not just in the work of salvation, but in the work of sanctification. John says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's still mediating on your behalf, interceding before God's throne. On your behalf, pleading your case there, appealing for your forgiveness based on His atoning work. And that gives us further confidence as we pray. We have a mediator between ourselves and and God. And then he again gives in verse 6 a further work of that uh, description of that work of the mediator in verse 6 who gave himself he says and there's the word again a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Should we think that Paul is saying there, using the same word pas that he used in word in verse 1 and again in verse 4 is different in meaning in verse 7. The ransom of Christ is global, universal, includes all kinds of men from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we pray, therefore, these global expansive prayers for the world. Then a third basis for our prayer is our own participation in the gospel, if you will. And Paul talks about that giving us his own testimony in verse 7. For he says, for this I was appointed. That is, for this proclamation of the gospel to the world, to all kinds of men, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And you know, some people found that hard to believe that Paul was in that place, given his past. He says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of who? Of the Gentiles. In faith and truth. And Paul there is even talking about the expansion of the gospel to those outside of the Jews. And Paul realized he had to play, a role to play in 
the application of God's plan of salvation, not just in praying for it, but in participating in it. Telling others of the good news of the gospel, functioning as a preacher, as an apostle. And he knew that God would use his ministry of sharing the good news with others to bring them to saving faith in Christ. Again, God works through means. He works through prayers. He works through preaching, teaching, sharing, telling. It's amazing, isn't it? That God accomplishes eternal plan of salvation through what you might say to your neighbor or to your co-worker or to your child, telling them the good news of the gospel. We are all called on to be ambassadors for Christ and we're to appeal to men saying, be reconciled to God. Paul was an apostle. He was a, an evangelist. He was a preacher. You might not be called to any of that. But you're called to be an ambassador who calls people to faith and tells them of the good news. Because that's why we need to pray. These broad, global, expansive prayers. Why we need to pray for all men pray evangelistically because God's plan of salvation is global and again it's so easy to live our lives with a kind of spiritual tunnel vision and one of my resolutions I'm going to make it early it's just November it's not even January is to have a more global perspective myself and to help you as a church to have a more global vision it's so easy for me to focus right here and to be concerned about the needs. And sometimes there are many needs right here in our own flock. We need to realize that the good news, the gospel, is global. We need to pray for God to bring all of his people home, wherever they may be, in the far corners of the world, and would use his word, the good news of the gospel, to change hearts and lives of people, not just here, not just in Meridian, not just in Mississippi, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. And we know it is good news because being estranged from Christ is bad news. And so we pray for ourselves that we would rejoice today in the good news of the truth. We would delight in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And we would pray earnestly for all men to be saved. All those, Father, of your people around the world, bring them, O oh God, to faith. Use your word. Use ministers of the gospel, preachers of the truth, missionaries, regular old believers like us. Father, use us to accomplish your will, bringing people to faith that we might give you all the praise and glory and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.